It is about winning. Nothing else matters. If you want to take your state back, if you want to take your country back, you're going to have to roll your sleeves up. To debate up. him, there is a false equivalency implied from the outset. It's not legitimating his views. You invite people here because they have views that are significant, and you want to hear them so you can both understand where they're coming from and so that you can challenge them. Welcome to another Maroon Weekly Special Report. I'm Grace Houck, and yesterday I sat down with news reporter Jamie Ehrlich and law professor Jeffrey Stone to discuss Steve Bannon and free speech on campus. Um, Jeffrey Stone, uh, Edward H. Levy, Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the um, University of Chicago. And what was your reaction when you first heard that Steve Bannon had been invited to campus? My reaction was to think that it was interesting. I was curious about, you know, what the purpose of the discussion would be, but I was, I thought it was an interesting thing. You chaired the Committee on Freedom of Expression that produced the 2015 report. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what led to the report's inception and um, kind of what the report says in general. So the report came about because President Zimmer was aware that there'd been a couple of instances at universities around the country in which there had been uh, disinvitations of speakers like Condoleezza Rice um, and a couple of instances of disruption. And uh, he concluded that it would be useful for the university to have a policy that could provide guidance for us if and when we encountered similar types of issues. And so he asked me to chair that committee and we put together a, a group of seven very distinguished faculty members from across the university and spent several months speaking with people both here and across the country uh, and uh, came up with a relatively short report um, that I'm told has now been adopted by over 30 colleges and universities. The report is indeed pretty short. It's just over two pages. Here are some key lines on what power the university has, according to the report, to curtail speech. The freedom to debate and discuss the merits of competing ideas does not, of course, mean that individuals may say whatever they wish whenever they wish. The university may restrict expression that violates the law, that falsely defames a specific individual, that constitutes a genuine threat or harassment, that unjustifiably invades substantial privacy or confidentiality interests, or that is otherwise directly incompatible with the functioning of the university. In addition, the university may reasonably regulate the time, place, and manner of expression to ensure that it does not disrupt the ordinary activities of the university. Um, and the report itself basically reaffirms uh, what has been a fundamental value of the University of Chicago from its very founding, uh, which is that uh, academic freedom is essential to the work and the intellectual culture of a true university, and that that means that students and faculty should be free to hear um, ideas that interest them, that challenge them, um, and the fact that other people may find the ideas being expressed uh, offensive or wrongheaded is not a reason for censoring the presentation of the ideas. And that was the main, the main point of the, of the report. And what may be a legitimate reason for censoring speech? Well, there's speech that's illegal. Um, there's speech that constitutes uh, what are called true threats. Uh, there's speech that's, that's defamatory and libelous. There's speech that invades privacy. Um, so there are categories of speech that are subject to regulation, mm -hmm. and we mentioned those in the report. Uh, but none of those involve opposition to an idea because the idea is seen as disturbing or offensive or wrong. 
I think a lot of the discourse among the undergraduate population is that because Steve Bannon, rightfully or not, is often associated in the public mind with the rise of the alt-right with white nationalism, that that could potentially be dangerous or propagating those ideas could be threatening in some way. Do you feel that that any of those arguments could potentially be made for Steve Bannon representing a threat or representing hate speech in any way? Steve Bannon may say things, although I don't think the purpose of this visit is that, but Steve Bannon may believe and say things that um, people, including myself, find offensive and stupid and, and hurtful. But... Um, that doesn't make them not protected speech. And, you know, throughout our history, ideas that other people found hateful, um, like those ideas that led to the civil rights movement or the women's rights movement or the gay rights movement or legalizing abortion, um, being able to advocate those ideas when other people would very much have liked to suppress them uh, was critical. And, and the, so even given the violent history of white nationalism in this country and around the world, there would be no restrictions on his speech. Steve Bannon coming here is not going to be causing violence because he is advocating that, except by people who oppose him. Right. So, so that the only us... danger there is the, is the opposition, not Bannon. And the opposition here may be falling under the discussion of the heckler's video. Sure. One of the fundamental understandings of the First Amendment jurisprudence is that the court over time, the Supreme Court over time, came to understand that if you allow other persons to uh, shut down a speaker by threats or violence or actual violence or noise or whatever, and they then effectively uh, lead the authorities to shut down the speaker, that you're basically turning over the power of censorship to those other people. And that simply invites and encourages other people to do that. And they can do that regardless of the ideas being expressed. So again, if you imagine Cecile Richards of Planned Parenthood coming here to speak, you can imagine people trying to shut that down because they think that she's advocating the murder of unborn children. Um, And uh, I think that the the notion of the heckler's veto says that it's the responsibility of the people in positions of authority to do everything reasonably possible to protect the speech and not to allow other people to essentially co-opt the speech by their opposition. Because once you open the door to that, then there's no closing it and you've given up free speech. And we've spoken a bit about the free speech for students as well as possibly faculty members or those who come here to speak. But recently you may have heard that Samantha Isla Driscoll, who actually was working on ProMarket, which is the blog that Professor Zingales is involved with, recently stepped down as senior editor there and there was some discussion about what are the rights of staff? What, what free speech do they have? Was that covered in your report? written back in 2015? Not in the context that you're raising. Um, It certainly suggested that members of the community have the right to free speech. Um, But the particular situation, as I understand it, and I haven't really Mm -hmm. followed this carefully, but the particular situation she's raised is a very complicated one. And it's the same argument, for example, that the baker makes in the Masterpiece Bake Shop case. So I said, I'm sorry, guys, I don't do cakes for same-sex weddings. You know, look surprised. I said, what? No, so you cookies, brownies, birthday cakes, shower cakes. I just don't do cakes for same-sex weddings. At which point, uh, one of them stomped out that door, and the other one went out this door. He flipped me off and swore at me. That I don't have to serve wedding cakes to people who are going to be married when they're gay because mm-hmm. I don't want to endorse that. Or that the individual who refused to issue marriage licenses to gay couples was making. So the notion that you can refuse to do your job or follow the law 
because following the, the law or doing your job is inconsistent with what your values are is a very tricky business because it's a two-edged sword. And, you know, basically, if you're defending her, then you have to at least be open to defending the baker who says, I don't want to serve this person. His reasons are basically the same as hers. Um, and that's still pending right now. Right, right. But, the, but the question is not the constitutional issue. The question is, do people who, are, who fancy themselves liberals support the baker? Mm-hmm. They do not. The second point is that um, situations where someone takes employment, ordinarily you agree to do the job. And that's the terms of the employment. Now, you don't have to, you can quit, right? But, you know, if you had, you know, maintenance staff who said, you know, we refuse to prepare the room where Cecile Richards is coming to give a speech because we're anti-abortion, right? Um, and if you had security officials who said, I'm not going to defend you know, the, 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 the security of, of whether it's Milo Yiannopoulos on one end or Barack Obama on the other, because I disagree with them, you can see what you're opening up. It's a huge can of worms. And as a consequence of that, as, there, as a matter of right, generally, you don't give people that right. On the other hand, you might say, if you don't think you're opening up a slippery slope and this is not a problem that's going to arise very often and you can accommodate the person fairly easily, you might decide, you know, okay, why not? As in Samantha's case. But keep in mind that same argument is made about the baker. The baker says, go down the street and get a wedding cake from somebody else. Leave me alone. Right? Now, if you're prepared to defend that, then, okay, you've got a principle. But if you don't see them as the same case, you've got a problem. So you've been at the university over 30 years. and 45 years. 45 years. Okay. So um, do you feel as though the circumstances surrounding Bannon's visit are unique from other times where free speech has been challenged on campus? Um, Or can you just talk a little bit about um, instances in the past where we've seen this exact argument taking place? So there have been, over the years, there have been a number of of instances. Um, One of the most famous in, in the 19, late 1930s, I think it was, was when William Foster was invited by a student group, uh, the head of the Communist Party of the United States, to come to the University of Chicago campus to speak. And this raised an enormous furor, where alumni, other students, state legislators, um, faculty members said, we can't allow the head of the Communist Party to come and speak at the University of Chicago. This is completely unacceptable. And um, Robert Maynard Hutchins, who was then president of the university, said, no, if our students want to hear this speaker, then our responsibility as an institution is to allow them to do that. And he defended their right to do that. And uh, he went down to the state house in, in Springfield because he was summoned there by the state legislature. And he would basically said, this is our responsibility. And our students are allowed to invite people who they want to speak. And if other people want to object, they can object. That's their free speech right but we don't take away the right of our students to speak or to have speakers here because other people objected them. At that time, some 3,000 students went down to Springfield and protested against the legislature, which was threatening to take away funding from the university because it allowed Foster to speak. In my opinion, it's the same thing. The people there who were opposed to communism felt every bit as strongly. You, know, you might be more sympathetic to the communists than you are at Bannon. I might be more sympathetic mm-hmm. to the communists. doesn't matter, right? It's the same principle. And, and that, that's who the University of Chicago is. I mean, I also want to make clear, I think it's perfectly appropriate to people to disagree. Mm-hmm. 
that this is good judgment. I mean, I think those who thought that inviting William Foster was a terrible thing for the University of Chicago to do and cast the University of Chicago in a horrible light on the part of many alumni, many Americans, and so on, they were free to explain, express that view. I think different faculty members hold different views about who they think would be interesting speakers. And you make choices based, hopefully, on uh, your understanding of the, the legitimate contribution that a speaker can make uh, to the issues that would be discussed. And when Richard Spencer reached out to you, you found him to not be legitimate or productive in any no, way. No, I just said that he was not somebody I would invite. Mm-hmm. I also said I would completely defend the right of anybody else who disagreed Certainly. and thought he would be a useful speaker. But there's, as I say, there's, there's, there's thousands of people who would love to be invited to speak at the university. You don't just invite them all. You know, when Richard Spencer asked me if I would invite him, my basic answer was I don't think that, from my perspective, that I, I would find having you here all that interesting. I don't think you're that interesting a person. But there are lots of people with whom I strongly disagree who I am happy to invite to come here. I mean, I was always eager to have Antonin Scalia come here and, and offer his views, even though I strongly disagree with him, because I think that's how you learn, and that's how he learns. There are undoubtedly faculty members who strongly disagree with the, with the um, appropriateness or desirability of inviting Steve Bannon, just as there were many faculty members who disagreed with inviting William Foster. There was a group of faculty members who signed a letter in opposition to Bannon speaking, and they said, quote, the defense of freedom of expression cannot be taken to mean that white supremacy, anti-Semitism, misogyny, homophobia, anti-Catholicism, and Islamophobia must be afforded the rights and opportunity to be aired on a university campus. Well, that's what people said about communism, and that's what people said about gay rights. I mean, I'm old enough to remember mm-hmm. that if you brought somebody here who was expounding gay marriage, right, 40 years ago, that would be absurd, right? Or 80 years ago, legal abortion. Um, the, the basic point is they have a set of views that they believe are illegitimate, and I happen to agree with them. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we should not hear them. Is there a limit? Is there anyone you would not... That I would think the university should veto? Yes, correct. Probably not. So, not to be dramatic, but if, if Hitler himself were resurrected, that is acceptable. I'd be really interested to hear what he had to say. I mean, uh, and, and be able to respond to him and be able to argue with him. So you then would think... It's not legitimating his views. You invite people here because mm-hmm. you, you want... Sometimes you invite people here because you, you admire them and you want to hear their views and you agree with them. Other times right. you invite them because they have views that are significant and you want to hear them so you can both understand where they're coming from and so that you can challenge them and contest them. And I think the issue of legitimization, um, maybe not so much here at the law school, but certainly among the college, um, is certainly a big one, along with the normalization of this presidency, of these issues. What do you make of those arguments? I think in a university, they're wrong. I mean, I think that in a university, that the a, a fundamental precept is that you want to be able to hear the views of the people with whom you disagree. It's If you're going to reject them, you've got to know what they think. You have to understand why they believe what they do, and that gives you a much better grounding for explaining why you disagree with them and refuting them. And if you refuse to hear them, you can go around yelling, I don't like what they're saying, but you don't even know what they're saying. And I think inviting people you disagree with is an important way of of engaging in, in, in serious discourse. Not that this is a, a view that I hold, but the typical pushback is that we do, in fact, know what their views are because maybe they've publi- been publicized another way, they've spoken in other places, and so, in fact, by bringing them here and even 
asking them questions would not provide anything new. I don't know about you, but I don't know what Steve Bannon thinks about the issues of immigration and globalization from an economic perspective. I know he's opposed to certain, you know, I know in a very vague sense what his views are, Mm -hmm. but I don't know what the arguments are. And and the other part of this is you're not just inviting him here so he can tell you what he thinks. This is a debate. Right. Right? So you want you, you want to hear the other side. You want to hear what the arguments are on the other side. Or at least you in this context, that. it would be. Yeah, right? in this there, there, there was the possibility, not for him, but for other speakers who maybe have invited in the past, it would be more of a speech and then maybe a short Q&A afterwards. But I think what we're looking at right now would be a debate format. That's my understanding. Right? Yes. Um, but even if it's a speech, I mean, understanding what, what people think and why they think it is, is useful. I mean, you say we know what Bannon thinks. I don't actually know what Bannon thinks. I don't know the reasoning behind his positions. I don't know that I would have invited Bannon. Okay. Because um, there's a whole lot of people I wouldn't bother inviting. Right. Um, but when I learned he was inviting him, you know, part of my reaction was that's interesting. Because they're, they're going to have a serious conversation, right, over there. And um, so, you know, would I invite him to the law school, for example? It's conceivable. It hadn't occurred to me. Mm. But, you know, if you're willing to invite, you know, Cecile Richards, like you, which we did two years ago, um, and lots of people are, are in the country are deeply opposed to everything she stands for, then I don't see a difference. So if he is here next month, two months, three months, would you consider having him come speak at the law school as well? If there was some legal-related issue that it made sense to have a discussion with him about, uh, yeah. Now, I don't know offhand that there is, mm-hmm. but... Um, but the, the law school's interest would obviously be in something that we, he, he had some legal perspective or expertise, and I don't know that that fits, fits his bill. Right. But, um, yeah, I, I would be interested in hearing what he had to say if there was some appropriate subject and topic. And I understand there are people who'd be upset, and I understand why they're upset, and I would respect their right to protest and to disagree. At your IMSA education speech last year, you mentioned that... Um, there should be equal weight on the speech of the speaker, the invited speaker, and the protesters. So those who are in opposition to the speaker have an equal voice. But And you also mentioned that in society there are some voices that are elevated while others are um, kind of pushed to the side. And that the university has a responsibility to elevate the voices that are usually misrepresented. And I'm wondering... What, how do you think the university can help the student voice be heard? Or do they have that responsibility to help the protesters, given that student government has already pledged to give funds to help with sign making and um, to make sure that the protesters have a safe and um, productive time when they're protesting? Well, I mean, I think, I think it's in the university's interest to enable protesters who object to a speaker to express their views in a peaceful and effective manner. And the other thing, of course, is that the university invites speakers on the other side all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you agree with the speaker, you ignore that. Right? When you agree with the speaker, you, just, you take it for granted. But, and you ignore the fact that there are other students who may not like that speaker. Right? But the truth is there's plenty of speakers who come to this campus who express views that are quite different from Steve Bannon's and from other conservative speakers. And the university should want to have a diversity of views. As far as I'm aware, there's plenty of resources available for students and faculty across the university to invite a whole range of speakers if they wish to do so. And so in that sense, you sort of rely upon the individual judgments of the student groups and the faculty programs and let them invite their speakers. So if students you know, think it's important to bring somebody here who would you know, give a perspective very different from Bannon's or faculty members like that, 
nothing prevents them from doing that. They, that would be great. Following the 2015 report that the committee put out, I'm wondering if it's kind of like an active conversation within the administration. I know last year there was the the letter um, kind of condemning uh, safe spaces and trigger warnings, and I'm wondering if it's still a conversation among the administration that free speech is an ongoing problem and we're going to need to iron things out as the administration moves forward. Okay, so for the record, I did not approve of that letter. Um, Not that I saw it in advance, Mm -hmm. but after the fact, um, I think it's not true that Mm -hmm. we don't have safe spaces. I think we have all sorts of safe spaces on our campus and should. And What do you mean by that? Student organizations where people have the opportunity, regardless of what their, whether it's identity or political views or religious views, whatever, that they have endless opportunities on this campus to be within groups that are, are people who are similar to their own views and attitudes and can talk about things and figure them out and, and invite speakers. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's an important part of the intellectual and social culture. And you would call that a safe space? I don't think anybody knows what a safe space is. Mm-hmm. It's not a term that has a formal definition. But I would say those are safe spaces in the sense that if you have a group of students who are African-American or Hispanic or, or evangelical, you know, they can create organizations, meet together, you know, to figure out how they want to approach issues, and that's what I, I would regard that as a safe space, mm-hmm. yes. And in terms of trigger warnings, my view is that that's a, a question for academic freedom. The university has no policy, in fact, on trigger warnings. It's entirely up to the individual faculty member to use whatever judgment he or she thinks is best in any given situation. There's, there's always discussion about these issues. Um, one type of the discussion is um, how to introduce students to this particular set of values. That's why I'm teaching a course in, in the college on free speech. Um, and so I think this is an issue which um, has come to the fore in the last several years. And I think this university and others are trying to figure out you know, how to address it in a constructive manner. And in addition to teaching courses like the one you're teaching now, how else do you think that can be done? Well, I think that the university is thinking about programs in the context of orientation, in which you know we talk about you know who we are as a university and and to present to the incoming students, like the aims of education address that I gave. But again, you don't want to be too heavy-handed about it. Mm-hmm. You know, we believe it's your right to decide. You don't agree with that. So students are perfectly free, and faculty are perfectly free to say free speech is nonsense. I don't believe in free speech. And fine, make that argument. That's perfectly okay. Do you feel like the safe spaces and trigger warning letter was regressive to that aim? Do you think that it it prevented people from understanding exactly what free speech in academia means at this university? I mean, I, I don't want to be too harsh on it, but mm-hmm. I think it, it deflected attention mm-hmm. away from what I think is the central question. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I think that it it, it was um, it, it was not an accurate statement of the university's policies or reality, and it was, in my view, extreme in what it was saying with respect mm-hmm. to trigger warnings and safe spaces, and and deflected attention away from the free speech issue, which is actually neither of those. I'm also wondering if you feel as though the right, and maybe even more specifically the all right has used or leveraged the First Amendment or free speech in any way to further their goals. And I'm I'm saying that as I look through Breitbart and there are all like these headlines with trigger warnings in it, like announcing that universities are giving trigger warnings now. Um, I'm just kind of wondering your thoughts on that. 
Um, I, I think that to, to a real degree, they have um, used the reaction against free speech mm-hmm. to say that, that these people are not committed to the real values of, of our nation. And so, you know, I, I think that those who've disrupted or violently protested have made a terrible mistake. Strategically, forget about what you think about free speech. Simply strategically. The only reason we know who Milo Yiannopoulos is, I mean, is because he's been made a headline because of the responses to his speech. And, you know, organizations like um, the Southern Poverty Law Center have said, don't do that. Don't do that. That's a mistake. Right? All you do is make them powerful. By making them seem much more important than they really are. If you legitimate censorship, then you may not be the one who's controlling. And one of the central precepts of understanding the concept of free speech, you're legitimating a certain type of censorship, which in the long run will come back and bite you in the face. Not just the butt, but in the face. I I chose the word carefully. Yeah, okay. Thank you, Jamie Ehrlich and Professor Stone. And if you liked what you heard, please tune in Monday morning for our regularly scheduled show, The Maroon Weekly.